I lost like four teeth, which sounds bizarre because I'm only in my 30s. My kids should be losing teeth, not their mom. And, and I did, that happened through stress. I just kept grinding my teeth at night, worrying about cash flow, worrying about relationships that didn't serve me. Stress can take on many forms and destroy a person in a variety of ways. For Kim Whitaker, that stress came at her from every angle and worked its way through each and every part of her life. Kim was the co-founder of Once Travel, Quella Woman, and she founded Ubuntu Beds during the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. In recent years, her hotel business faced protests and riots, an impending drought, load shedding, a difficult business partner relationship, and finally the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode of It's Not Over, I talked to Kim Whitaker about losing her teeth, being one of the first people in South Africa to get COVID, how she managed to sell a hotel business with no tourism, and so much more. My name is Nick Harolamis, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I am your host, Nick Harolambus, and with me today is a friend of mine, Kim Whitaker, who has got a very recent, near almost death, interesting story. Kim, welcome, and I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Nick. I'm excited to speak to you too. Awesome. Okay, so kick off and tell us a little bit about yourself and the business that you are going to be talking to us about, like how does it make money, any pertinent information that will make the story more listenable for us. Cool. So I started Once Travel in 2013. We started a backpackers hotel in Cube Street in Cape Town. I had started my own business a few years prior. Uh, when I was 23, I started a little backpackers in Observatory in Cape Town. And this seemed like the natural progression. So we took over a 50-room hotel in Cape Town and we infused it with youthful energy and redesigned the concept and the flow. We took away parking bays and put in a fire pit in central Cape Town. And everything was about experience, experiences. So young people coming together, leaving themselves at home and, and traveling and meeting new people. Um, so we really created spaces where young people can come alive. That was in 2013. And fast forward a few years, we subsequently opened once in Joburg, in central Johannesburg, very similar concept. And I started doing a lot of trips between the two. By the end of 2019, we were accommodating about 23,000 guests a year and from all over the world. I mean, like, I, th I don't think there was one country that we didn't have guests from. Um, and really curating experiences. So we took the brand a bit further. We made money, obviously, through the beds. So people coming to stay either in a shared room or a dormitory or in a private room. And we also sold experiences. So anything from Africa burn trips to Bushfire Festival in Swaziland or Eswatini. We, we curated road trips and, and everything in between. So that's how we made money. And that was my... Okay, more context building there. Did you have a history in uh, hospitality that you decided in 2013, screw it, let's open a backpackers? So I started my first hostel when I, in 2007, actually, and I had zero hospitality experience. The only thing I had was quite a few years of travel experience. So when I was 18, I got on a plane after Pit Rage, which is a big party that happens when you finish high school here in South Africa. 
And I decided I'm going to go be a ski instructor in Austria. So that was my, my first job, my first hustle. And in between, I was also a bartender and cleaning hotel rooms and using all that money that I'd collect during the winter season to travel loads when I came back to university uh, for the summer. So whether it was road trips to Mozambique, Namibia, Botswana, Thailand, and then I lived in Patagonia, South America for quite a few months. I love traveling. And I had a little black book with me and, and I always made notes of like, what would make this place better? So for example, in Patagonia, uh, I had all my clothes stolen. And I was like, gosh, it would be useful to have a locker, which locks, and, and where I could, for example, charge my, my laptop and my camera. And so when I built my first hostel, uh, I was 23, and I built it with my best friend. We designed lockers that lock with a charging unit in it and a safe in it and, and all these little things from my black book. So I'll say I'm a big proponent of experiential learning. And it's actually something that I went on to go write my master's on about how young people can actually experience the world, learn from it, and then build that into a career. So no formal hospitality training and just experience, life experience. It's really interesting to me that you made notes everywhere you went. That is very unusual for a young person to be that pedantic about wanting to fix things and making notes about them. Are you a voracious note taker? Like, were you always observing things you wanted to fix? Or was this particular thing just like something random you did? Okay, so yes, voracious note taker for sure. Like, even I went back to study in my 30s and... <laughs> My notebooks are like pretty amazing, like different colors. And I just, I love taking notes. So yeah, I'm a ferocious note taker. I'm also German. And so I feel that like having order in chaos is something that is in my blood and I cannot explain it because I'm quite chaotic, but I love order. I'd say I've been working on my values recently after, since selling the business and I'm sure we'll, we'll go more into that. I've really been focusing on like, what are my values, what I care about? And I'll say that I'm getting close to knowing it and creating order and beauty in a chaotic world is one of my top values. So note-taking is one of those things that definitely falls into that. Okay, so now we understand that you have got a hell of a, a hostel backpackers, 23,000 guests a year, which is an insane number to me. How many staff do you have? And are you still shooting between Joburg and Cape Town? How is the business doing around 2019 before COVID? So we have about 60 staff, which are divided between the properties and our head office. So we have Cape Town, Johannesburg, and the head office is in Cape Town. Yeah, I'm traveling a lot. I started Johannesburg when my son was two months old. So by the time he was six months, he had been on 40 flights. <laughs> And he, I was traveling with like a nanny in Joburg, a nanny in Cape Town, uh, going into architectural meetings, like breastfeeding, saying, sorry, you know, my son's only seven weeks old or eight weeks old. So yeah, it was, it was a very intense, busy time. Uh, as the business launched, it was sort of bad timing because Fees Must Fall was happening at the same time as we launched. And what I learned about Bramfontein, which is the area where we started in Johannesburg, is that the thing that I loved the most about it was also the worst about it. And that was that uh, it really is a boiling pot of uh, culture in South Africa. And when, you, when I went out there, I just felt like, wow, this is, 
this is a South Africa I want to be part of. It's like pumping artists, creatives, a diversity that we don't really see so much in Cape Town. And I just felt very alive. The downside of that is when we hear something on the news that there's some sort of unrest in South Africa, like on the ground in Bramfontein, it is heaving. There's like demonstrating and people are marching between Pisatu and the ANC and then the EFF and Pisatu and then EFF and the ANC. And we were basically on that main road. So very busy. I remember putting a damp face cloth over my son because there's tear gas like so thick in the air from, from trying to um, dispel all the all the rioting. And I just thought, oh, my word. Like if my mother-in-law knew what I was doing to her grandson, like she would kill me. So, yeah, it was pretty wild when we started. And I and unfortunately, that cost us a lot of business. A lot of the tour groups that we had already pre-signed pulled out. And that, that was quite a big sort of portion of our bread and butter, the, the standard coming in three times a week to operator. So it took us many years to, to win them back and try and sort of persuade them that, that this area was in fact like safe and fun and very vibrant. Cape Town, on the other hand, was always quite stable in the CBD, beautiful. And and I'd say that we were quite quite a big part of, of opening up the Cliff Street Corridor and I remember a funny moment in time where we were struggling to get our license from the city of Cape Town on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they showcased our property at an architectural conference in New York saying, this property has opened up the Cliff Street Corridor. And I was like, thanks so much. Uh, can you please give us like our, our, our license? <laughs> so so it, was, it, was a, it was a very, very buzzing time. Um, and we had expansion plans. We had big plans. We were going to be opening in Zanzibar. We were looking at another property in Cape Town. We were we were uh, sort of looking at expansion in Nairobi, and and then things sort of turned around in 2020. It's tough building a business in general. Never mind building a business with a two month old in multiple cities while the country's youth is rioting and protesting for free university fees. And then that's not even the big uh, fuck up in your business. So like that is pretty wild just to begin with it. Those are just the normal um, status quo of building a business in South Africa. So then I imagine, and if listeners are paying attention, they probably can assume what's coming up now is South Africa locks down and COVID, uh, you know, floods the world. So I'm assuming that that's where we're getting to. And like, take us away. Like, what what happened? How did that feel in those moments? Well, actually, I, I think I've left out a part of the story. And okay, the, let's go back. When then. you said when you said the rioting, I was like. <laughs> That's not all <laughs> because load shedding also exists. And when you have a 50 room hotel, which relies on pumps to pump water to the top floor and like electricity supply becomes quite important. So that was the one thing which we learned to navigate pretty quickly. That familiar jingle lets you know that this is a short advert for those entrepreneurs listening. Do you feel guilty when you're at home with your family that you should be working? Do you also feel guilty when you're working that you should be at home with your family or out with your friends? I get it. It's tough to build something meaningful. But I don't believe that balance is something to strive for. I believe that work is part of life and life is part of work and I want to help you integrate the two more effectively. 
If you think you need a coach to help you find this integration, then contact me and let's work together. Visit www.nharry.com. That's www.nharry.com. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. For international listeners, load shedding is a massive problem in South Africa. Our core electricity infrastructure is fundamentally broken, and throughout the country, we can go days and hours with no electricity in certain sectors. Sometimes it's planned, sometimes it's unplanned. It is brutal and intense for anyone building a business to one day wake up and then tell you that there's no electricity for eight hours and your team should go home. So load shedding was a constant problem and still is a constant problem in the country. And then what else happened? So the drought in 2018. The Cape Town drought. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It feels like next thing I'll be talking about locusts. But, but it, or, it was, or zombies. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but the drought, I mean, so Cape Town, let's, let's simplify it. Let's say Cape Town almost ran out of water. And in an effort to save water, uh, there was a big campaign called Day Zero. And what Day Zero effectively did was scare people into saving water, but it also scared international travelers away from South Africa. And the sentiment overarchingly was, I don't want to take water away from the locals. This is a, a poor region, and I feel guilty if I come there to do wine tasting and safaris, and, and I'm taking the water from my shower, so I'm just not going to come. And so what that effectively resulted in was about a 15% drop in tourism. And and that affected everyone. I mean, I'd love to say that it didn't affect us, but it, it had a noticeable effect. And of course, when big hotels are standing empty, price wars start. And so we are a high volume, low uh, price business. And when you start eroding into our already quite low pricing, it was just pretty disastrous. So coming off the back of that, as well as growing the team and trying to do this big expansion, finishing my master's, I actually completely burnt out in 2019. And at the end of 2019, let's say November, December, I pulled out of a number of significant projects that that I just realized did not align with my values, didn't align with uh, my goals, and was, it was costing, my, costing me my health. So I lost like 40, which sounds bizarre because I'm only in my 30s and I shouldn't, my kids should be losing teeth, not their mom. And, and I did, that happened through stress, like just through grinding my teeth at night, worrying about cash flow, worrying about relationships that didn't serve me. So literally, I lost all these teeth. I, I empathize <laughs> so deeply with that. I also want to just jump back to the, the drought. I think you're being polite and underplaying the drama of it because you don't want to seem like your business maybe was coming under too much stress. But so I was in Cape Town at the time and we were going to be the first city in the world, in the history of the world, to run out of water. And we came 24 days away from that exact inevitability. I mean, to put that into perspective for people, at one point, the government had started to deploy the army and had given us our rations that each person would be able to take 20 liters of water per day. And if you think about that for a second, when you're asking a tourist to go and queue with locals on a field surrounded by the army, and physically carry 10 liters in each hand of water, it becomes a very overwhelming prospect. Like people were fleeing the province so that they didn't have to do this. It was a brutal and intense time. Couple that with, oh, today we have no water. And oh, by the way, it's load shedding too. 
oh, okay, so we have no water and no electricity. So now you've lost some teeth, you've, <laughs> you've experienced a drought, you've got load shedding, and now we're at the point where you're making pretty hard decisions even before COVID kicked in. You're getting rid of some of your commitments. You're trying to find stable points in your days, and you've recognized that your mental health is in trouble, but, but the worst times are still to come, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Great summary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because sometimes like I didn't realize until I realized. I just kept on soldiering on and every day there was some sort of battle to fight, but but the battle axe was ready and and I just carried on and I think it was that moment I, I, I went away for three weeks to write my thesis and it it involved a lot of self-reflection, a lot of introspection. I realized I have a massive savior complex. As a South African, I believe many of us do, where I feel a tremendous responsibility and guilt to like be the savior that South Africa needs. And I and, and I realized that job creation, employment was was a big driver to my success and the feeling of success I had was, oh well. You know, I have I have sixty staff, and I have a, an academy with twenty or thirty young women, and I'm doing all these great things for the future of South Africa. And and I think it takes I think it took its toll on me. Not only not only making the business uh, sustainable and profitable, but then also having this massive sense of responsibility to educate and promote growth and. Uh, open up career pathways for young South Africans. And and yeah, so 2019 December was a bit of a, a dark month. I, I just, I, I had enough. I checked out. Okay. And then you took some time off, three weeks to, I mean, not take a break, to write your master's thesis. And then you came back in 2020 with Joburg and Cape Town still in place. You've still got 60 staff. You've still planning for the growth and things are still, you're kind of getting rid of stuff, but you still focused on once is going to be a big business and then what happens? Well, actually at that stage, I had received an offer for the business and I was entertaining okay. that. And so the the whole notion of success, I had really questioned that and and I decided that biggering and biggering was previously my definition of success. And I could see that it wasn't working for me. At least the way that I was doing it was we were bootstrapping it. We didn't take any external funding or we took very little. And, and it wasn't working for me. It was costing me my health, potentially my marriage. And I was like, no, this is, this is not good. So I had pulled back. And I was entertaining a sale, so we were sort of discussing the parameters of what a sale might look like. And so now it's February 2020. I'm, I'm preparing for a big show in, in Berlin. And I fly out to Berlin, it's like maybe actually beginning of March. And as I land, the conference organizers text me, they're like, Kim, the conference is off, it's been canceled. COVID's hit and it's now like a problem. I was like, COVID? Really? What? What's this? I mean, we were kind of joking about it at the, in our office, like it's named after a beer, how bizarre. And, like, you know, sympathy for all the, the Chinese at that stage who were um, being affected. So I carried on. I had some meetings in Berlin, just kind of cruised around. I went on a, on a, a ski trip with a girlfriend. We'd been planning it for months. 
super exciting, way too much tequila, way too much, like Aperol spritz. Come back to South Africa. It's now, let's say, uh, the first week of March. And I got to go, I, I'm going to my kids' school to fetch them. And they're like, no, Kim, you can't come in. You've been overseas. You need to quarantine. I'm like, quarantine? For what? Corona's in Europe. Like, it's not even here. And they said, no, we insist you can't come onto the school. I just marched into the headmistress's office. I'm like, what's this nonsense? I'm here to fetch my kids. I fetch the kids. Then later, we went out for dinner with my husband. Later on that evening, we decided to find this quarantine. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get a COVID test and we'll figure out who's done We can do this. Lancet Labs had just opened a COVID testing facility. I think I was the second person to ever get one. The guy wasn't even wearing a mask. Like, <laughs> he didn't even have gloves on when he took my COVID wow. test. And, but super professional, super great. And basically, the next day, my doctor calls me and she's like, Kim, you have COVID. I'm like, what? I don't feel sick at all. What do you mean? And there it is, number 42 in South Africa, female, 35 years old, in Friedrich, <laughs> has COVID. So here I am. I'm starting to feel sick. I'm starting to lose energy. I'm starting to I wake up in the morning and I think that was a nightmare. <laughs> Thank God it wasn't real. And then I'm like, oh, wait, it is real. This is not good. I still feel terrible. What am I going to do? And my, I had to close the office down, which was because I popped in to go say hi. And in the midst of this, on the 15th of March, I was on a call to, on an EO, which is Entrepreneurs Organization, where, where I'm a very sort of ardent member. We were on an international call with a man in Lombardy in Italy. And he was saying, this is a disaster. Like, healthcare workers are burnt out. They're exhausted. People are just dying. We don't have enough space for the dead. And here I am with COVID, and at the same breath, looking at my phone, people are going jawling, people are like, let's meet a caprice for drinks. And I'm like, oh, I can see what's coming. I can see the future in two or three weeks. Like, this is going to hit us as hard. And I, I really felt like I had to start speaking up about it. Mm. But someone asked him on that call, what would you have done two weeks ago? And he said, what I've done two weeks ago is I would have asked the hotels to stay open and accommodate the healthcare workers because oh, wow. they're literally sleeping in their cars. That They don't want to go home because they don't want to affect their families. And all the hotels are closed. And I was like, oh, mm. that's a really good idea. Like, I have two yeah. hotels. This sounds like something cool. And so that mm. was where a seed was planted to start the next, the next venture. The next venture, as if you needed a new venture while you're in quarantine with two kids and two hotels that are about to shut down and prevent you from earning income for the next two years. Exactly. And I think yeah, it was nice. that, <laughs> I'll say that my Achilles heel, but also my advantage is that I'm very future focused. So future thing, I, I struggle to be present and that's something that I've had to work on because I'm always thinking about the future. And the future to me is, is very vivid and uh, very clear. And so I, I fast forwarded and I was like, okay, in two or three or four months time, we will have run out of cash flow, and, and I need to make a plan. And so Ubuntu Beds was born, primarily because the seed was planted by someone else on what the need was. I had this resource that I could tell was gonna be empty within a few days, and my parents are doctors. I could see them starting to like put on their white coats and charge out to the front line. And I was kind of scared because they were older. And mm -hmm. I wanted a way, I had this feeling like I want to be a part of the solution. I want to help. 
And so Wunderbids was literally born about a week later, within 48 hours. And it was, it, was a, it was a series of odd events that led to something wonderful. After that call, I felt like I wanted to talk about my experience, being so naive about having COVID, and then actually ending up having it and realizing with tremendous guilt what might happen if someone else around me got it from me. I started writing a blog for a local uh, news, News24, which is a, an online uh, news agency here in South Africa. And I wrote my COVID diaries and I wrote everything from like how unpleasant it is to have things stuck up your nose, up to your brain, and, and how people had distanced themselves from us out of fear and how we were struggling to get groceries and everything I wrote about it. And it brought along a lot of eye-opening, like, wow, this is so interesting. And then also on the same breath, whole hundreds of comments of like you privileged white girl go skiing and then come back and bring COVID to South Africa how could you so so part of that experience was that I was getting a lot of radio interviews saying like what is it like to have COVID what does it feel like how are people treating you and I had one such interviews in beginning early April and over the weekend I was listening to Alanis Morissette cleaning my kitchen and I was like ah a platform. I'm going to make a platform where hotels can accommodate healthcare workers. I called a, a friend of mine, Ross Drakes, who, in fairness, I had only met once at a conference, and I was, and I call him a friend now, but back then I hardly knew him. But he was also part of EO, and I was like, "Hey, Ross, it's Kim. I sat next to you at Ignite two years ago. Um, so how about this idea? Like, I want to start a platform called Ubuntu Beds." Um, I need like a logo and a website. Do you think your team could do it? He's like, yeah, maybe. I was like, well, could we do it by Monday morning? This is Saturday evening. <laughs> um, because I have a radio interview with 702 in Cape Talk, and I think that that would be the right kind of audience to get some funding. He was like, uh, let me call my team and I'll call you back. And like five minutes later, he's like, my whole team's on board. They're all dropping what they're doing. And by Monday morning, we had like, the best logo, social media, we had a website and yeah, the team at Nicework just worked through the through the weekend to get that launched. And yeah, I did the did the interview telling them all about COVID and then I said, Oh, and we've launched a platform that accommodates healthcare workers in empty hotels. So if you have a hotel or an Airbnb or guest house, sign up. And if you if you know of any healthcare workers in public health or private health, get them to sign up. And yeah, like that just took off. So someone at B was listening and they got in touch and they said, we've actually built out a capacity for exactly this thing. Will you be our partner? So R&B sponsored a large portion of, of the accommodation. Many of their clients were large private hospitals in South Africa. So they all got on board to accommodate their healthcare workers who needed accommodation. And yeah, within a few weeks we had about 47 staff we had we had accommodated in the end a few thousand healthcare workers in about 180 hotels and mm. it was a yeah it was a, it was a real Ubuntu moment and I know it sounds so cheesy but for people to pull no together, I don't think it does yeah, I don't yeah. think it does sound cheesy. And for international listeners, Ubuntu is an African concept that means a very bad translation is I am because we are, that you exist in a community. 
So I want to jump back to once and ask some business pertinent questions. So COVID's hit, you've recovered. You shut down both once in Joburg and Cape Town for obvious reasons, or you give the beds to Ubuntu beds and make use of them. But what's your cash flow position like? I mean, is the business on its last legs? How did you manage to keep that alive if you're not getting money? So a few good things happened. Number one, March 2020 is post-high season. And so as a hospitality business, we would be accustomed to making a lot of money in high season and then generally being in a, in a cash flow negative state during winter or our lower seasons. And then so so we and, and because we don't re, we never really took on seasonal staff, we preferred to have constant uh, employees. This was always uh, something that we were comfortable with as a hospitality business. So COVID hit us and our coffers were full. The other thing that was an advantage is that our financial year end is not February, it's July. And so what happened is a lot of hospitality businesses would have paid tax in February and they would have had a lot less uh, money in the bank. And because our financial year end, we moved it a few years prior because I found that accountants were a lot more open to discussing dis- like discounts if it was in a time of year where they're not so busy. So, mm. and also February is high season for us, and I, I struggled to do month in, I mean, year end in February. So, I moved it a few years prior, and that was really our saving grace because we would have had to pay tax as sort of an outflow of really valuable sort of cash reserves because we had been hoping to expand. We hadn't taken a dividend the year before. So there were a number of factors that meant that our cash flow position was quite good. Mm. We acted really fast. So because I got COVID so early, I think the first call to our landlord was on 16th of March, bearing in mind that lockdown only happened from the 27th of March. So we were a good 11 days ahead of the curve. And so we were able to negotiate upfront like a very sound discount in line with our turnover. So our turnover dropped from about 25 million to about 2 million, which is a disaster to say the least. But we were that able was for to the negotiate. Year. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's insane here. <laughs> hey, folks. Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation, and I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now... Back to the knowledge bombs. So we were able to negotiate that. And and then it was just ruthless cost cutting. So I have a bit of an aversion towards like long-term sort of commitments, like let's say renting printers or or anything like that, where you know, you're bound for five years, we're paying this monthly fee. And so thank goodness we, we hardly had any of those kind of commitments. We were on a month-to-month contract with most things. So we just went through our income statement. I was like, cut, 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 cut. Anything that wasn't absolutely essential. So our ATM got removed. Um, any kind of marketing fee, like 
everything just was cut, like from day dot. So, so mid to early March, just ruthless cost cutting. Prioritizing the staff. So within the first week, we created a traffic light system where we said these are the three scenarios that may happen. Like lockdown may, may just be three weeks and then you go back to business as normal. It may be like six months. It might be 12 months. So we had these scenarios and then everyone knew like if tourism hasn't changed, if the situation hasn't changed, then the first wave of retrenchments are happening on this date and these are the people wow. who will be retrenched. And so, so there was like absolute clarity. And I'll say that our H, we, we have an external HR consultant and then our uh, CFO at the time, they were very quick on their feet and, and they helped me to, I had sort of, this, this imagination of how it might look and they were really good at putting it into a PowerPoint slide, WhatsApping that PowerPoint slide to all the staff, like making sure that it was clear, like this is what the process is. And so we cut down our costs straight away, anything that wasn't essential. Bearing in mind that in a hotel, you can't just leave because hotels are never built to close. So if you had to turn the water supply off, for example, and switch it on after three months, you burst the pipes because the pressure is wow. so high going up three or four stories. So it was complicated. Wow. You can't just, you, we could never close the business. Like hotels architecturally are not designed to be closed. So we had to have staff living on site. And then with the one to beds, the first two or three months, we accommodated healthcare workers for free. And then once the cash flow came in, uh, we were able to get a little bit every month to make sure that we had covered our costs. And likewise, food suppliers, transport suppliers, we managed to keep about 180 small businesses going just wow. with a little bit of a trickle of money. That's amazing. I want to ask you before we move on to the mental health and personal side of this, talk me through that first conversation with your staff. I think it was quite challenging to imagine, to try and paint a picture that wasn't doom and gloom. And while I am generally quite optimistic in nature. I also have a very highly pragmatic approach. So I tend to like say it as it is and be very pragmatic. Yeah, it was, we got everyone onto a Zoom call, made sure everyone had sufficient data and, and a connection to join the call. I presented the situation quite matter of fact and, and then allowed people the space to, to ask questions. There were very few questions because I think it was quite overwhelming. I feel like in that time, people were looking to someone for absolute mm -hmm. support. And it mm. was, and very early on, I had to say there's a large chance I won't be able to offer that because the sustainability of the business is also important. And so Johannesburg, we closed down. After three months, we had to make the decision. After four years, we were just breaking in and, and we, had, we had worked very closely with our landlord who offered tremendous support the whole way along. And it was tough, but we were we were not quite at break even yet. And this was the year, 2020 was going to be the year that we were like flying. And so we made a decision to to liquidate the business. Out of curiosity as well, I'd never been through a liquidation and I've heard so many terrible things. I thought, let's do a voluntary liquidation and let's see how that goes. So that was an interesting process. We got fully funded through um, a local initiative we took us through the steps. We had lawyers. So that was that was an interesting but traumatic experience because the staff in Joburg all lost their jobs. So within a few weeks and months, we had retrenched 
52 people, 58 people, the number just kept on rising. Yeah, and I think at the time I was very pragmatic, very sort of this is just how it has to go, external factors. But behind closed doors, it definitely did affect me. And I think my husband pulled me aside one day and he's like, if you carry on like this, we will be divorced in a year. Like you are working 16 hours a day, like you're not present, you're constantly worrying, like your health, I, I was, I gained a lot of weight, I wasn't exercising and, and it was like something needs to be you need to change. And did you work. hear him when he said that? Like, what was your response to him? Loud and clear. Like, loud and clear. He is not someone who uh, says things like that very often. And so and so coming from him, it was, I heard it loud and clear, and I made a change that day. Uh, oh, wow. I started trail running. Yeah, like, and I started shifting my focus and realizing that I, I am burnt out and I had to stop focusing mm. on that. I mean, because there's, there's some dark humor in, oh, you know, you lost four teeth from stress, but that shit is fucking real. Like, Oh, yeah. And interesting, I mean, I started reading up a lot. This is kind of esoteric, but tells me for a moment, but please. losing teeth is about making choices or not making choices. And so sitting with a decision for a while and not making a decision is what, what uh, they say makes you lose teeth. So, and right. I... And once I had made that decision, I was in a very toxic work relationship. And once I made the decision, that stopped. But yeah, coming back, I would say coming back to me was an important step. So like eating healthily, sitting down with my kids, focusing on being present, those things take time, but they're definitely worth it. And yeah. It's an unfortunate um, irony of being an entrepreneur and especially highly ambitious um, with the potential to be highly successful. You have to break before you realize that there's other ways to build things. You have to, for me, mm -hmm. I had to lose my hair, get a stomach ulcer, get kidney stones twice and go to hospital before I realized maybe 18 hours a day, seven days a week for three years in a row isn't a good idea to build a sustainable and profitable life. Yeah. And it is one of these unfortunate ironies. And it is actually a big reason for the show is to have other people hear from you and I that I lost my hair because in 18 months I was so stressed that that's how my stress manifested. Within 18 months, yeah. I went from a ponytail to bald. You lost yeah. four teeth. That is epic. I mean, one, Kim, one tooth. I would be like, okay, there's a fucking problem. You lost four. After the first one, weren't you like, hold on, there's something up here? No, so I mean, I like now we're going to getting into anatomy, but I mean, I, how it manifested was I had an ulcer over here and I had an ulcer over here. And ah. I have an incredibly high pain threshold. And so I just soldiered through. I was like, oh, I've just got a little bit of a headache. It's weird, I don't get headaches. But by the time I went to go see a maxillofacial specialist, they were like, we need to operate this what? tomorrow. Like you're about to and get that a, leans a brain tumor. <laughs> towards your choices thing, right? Like you yeah. made the consistent choice to ignore the pain and put yourself at the bottom of your priority list. And then you lost your teeth. Like yeah. I, I'm hammering on this because it's something that so many people do. We believe that it's okay. I'll be better tomorrow. I'll be healthy next week. I'll get my eight hours of sleep next month. When actually it's the other way around. It's the other way around. If you put yourself at the top of your priority list, everything else is easier. And I would argue that just looking at your um, fitness right now and your mental health right now, you probably feel the same now that you're out of that cloud, right? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I was so uh, my lifestyle changed completely. Like I'm now big into trail running. I've just spent three months skiing with my family, like backcountry skiing in Canada, Amazing. which was epic. And and it fuels my fire, and I think it makes me a more useful person to be around. Whereas being an entrepreneur was my identity for a very long time. And and COVID shook that. COVID really like turned that on its head. And eventually in December of 2021, I sold my business. And and then it begs the question, like, who am I? Who am who I am after I? 6 p.m.? So after 6 p.m.? Like, who am I around the braai or barbecue with friends? Like, in that situation, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I just want to be Kim. Like, I want people to to like me for like my personality not because i've started five businesses and whatever like who cares about that actually no one way easier said than done when you're neck deep in building a business i want to end off this once exit and what happened to ubuntu beds let's let's close the loop and tie the knot on this unbelievable story so so you said you sold the business in 2021 and my first question is how on earth did you sell a business that had no tourists so the good thing about our business in cape town is that we had two business models and we so we had a an opco which is the operations company that's called the hotel and we had a propco which is the property company and we decided to split the company like this in 2017 because we had a head lease, like many hotels do, and we also had other tenants. So we had restaurant tenants, we had a tailor, there's, let's say, seven tenants. And, and when we were looking at our, at our income statement, it always looked like amazing uh, prior to 2017. And it's because we had all this extra revenue coming in that isn't actually part of our hotel business. So we split the two. And there's value in the in having a head lease that's affordable and having multiple tenants every month, including the hotel, which is one of those tenants. Then there's also value in the hotel. Unfortunately, after COVID, the hotel brand value was very much, let's call it almost zero. If we're going to do a, a 3X or a 5X or whatever, it is actually zero because for, for two years or three years, we made no money. But the property company has value. So what we ended up doing was selling the shares in a property company. Yeah, I mean, one might argue that I could have waited five years. I could have built up the hotel brand again. But after 2019, the spark had gone for me and... I, I'm an all or nothing person and I could see that there are people out there who are hungry to do something amazing with the space. And I was like, my time's up. I'm handing over the reins. So to answer your question, we sold the hotel for very little, under $1,000 for everything related wow. to, the, to the hotel. And then we sold the property company uh, for a bit more. Wow. I mean, it's an interesting idea and concept to structure a business in that way that you've got your assets and then you've got the business you're building and then actually you can separate them out and one has value if the other doesn't. It's kind of a, a good hedge and obviously very common in the uh, hospitality space, just maybe not in others. So that's a really interesting insight. Okay. M my last question is usually this, and it is what has this entire experience taught you that you're going to take with you into every other business you build? We start we started the business on a slightly rocky partnership, and I'll say that that cost me 
for many years, like a lot of anxiety. And I'll say that it taught me more about myself than it does about other people. And that is that I have somewhat of an optimistic shadow, or let's say um, an innocent shadow, who's very, and, and I recently named her Pollyanna. And Pollyanna like hops into the room and is like joyful and optimistic about the future and will like do business with anyone and everyone. And that has cost me. So I'm cautious about who I will work with in a partnership. I, I love the idea of being a co-founder versus a founder. And I know from your business, your PTY is called One Man Can. And I just love that. Because I think it takes courage to do things completely on one's own. And I'll say that I'll say that that's been my lesson is to make sure that that the next time I go into business, I go into business either on my own or with uh, someone else who is who doesn't speak to my innocent shadow. So to be a bit more discerning with choosing partners, to take a bit more time. Um, to be a bit more realistic, yeah. that I think I'm still healing because I'm very much not trusting at the moment. And yeah. I experienced I experienced bullying for the first time last year, like corporate bullying. Wow. And I'm like, I'm a grown woman. You know, yeah. like when I think bullying, I think of my kids in the playground. And man, it is crazy. To be honest, I've never met a co-founder who doesn't have a bad co-founder story. It's, it's like a rite of passage to building a business. Everyone I know has got some kind of shitty co-founder story. And let me be clear, I've probably been the shitty co-founder on someone else's story. Like, that's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. I have for sure. Like, I am, I'm not easy to work with. <laughs> yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm like, yeah, I'm not easy to work with. Kim, amazingly, you told the very first COVID near-death story on this show, and it was gut-wrenching for me. So thank you for sharing so vulnerably and openly. I hugely appreciate it. I think there were so many lessons in this episode. And before you go, please tell people where they can find you, follow you, contact you, and hear more from you. I'm most active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Kim and currently... I'm looking at opportunities, so I don't know what my next thing is. So I don't have really a website you can you can follow. You can check out quella.org.za. That's my foundation that I haven't spoken a lot about, but I'm very passionate about. But otherwise, let's connect on LinkedIn. And if you have an interesting proposition or business you want to run past me, let's chat. Awesome. Kim, I'm very excited to see what's next for you. And I'm glad to say that for you and whatever you build next, it's not over. No, it isn't. Thank you, Nate.